Hi guys, welcome back after a little summer break. I hope you guys are doing great, maybe still even enjoying your holidays. This is your favorite Agile podcast, Mastering Agility. Brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the Agile coaches and Scrum Masters you need. Make sure to go to the website and subscribe to the newsletter right now in order to stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast. We aim to inspire you and others with the biggest name this business has to offer. And in today's episode, we've got John Riley, founder of ReadySetAgile.com. And we're talking about empirically unfucking things. I have no clue what it means. I'm just as curious as you guys. So let's go in and find out. John Riley, how are you doing? How's your day, man? I am doing great, Sander. How are you doing, sir? Pretty decent. Thank you for asking. Still at the end of my holiday. Looking forward to go back to work. Today we're talking about empirically unfucking things. Yes. I'm just as curious as the listener. What do you mean with empirically unfucking things? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I guess the subject came about uh, when I was just thinking about uh, how that day was going when we came up with this title. So. Uh, you know, I start with empiric- empirically doing something uh, the way empiricism is designed. And empiricism, it depends on who you ask, but basically it means knowledge comes from experience and decisions are made based on what you know. Okay? So it's what you know, not what you predict, not what you control. So, I mean, you go in, you, you can go into several, several tangents on that, but basically empirically unfucking something means that you try to make things that are complicated, less complicated. That's it. When, so when you, when you, so go ahead, what did you, was there something? No, you mentioned when you started explaining empiricism, you start you started off with, it depends who you ask. Yes. What different interpretations of the word empiricism, of the concept of empiricism, did you hear? Well, so here's the thing. Empiricism itself is a very long word. It's a very big word. It's a word that people don't understand because they've never heard it. Uh, so it's it's important to know the context of it. It means that you make your decisions based on what you know. Okay. So what I've seen time and time again is that people let their feelings get in the way and they think that they're using empiricism when they're not. Let me give you another example. Uh, the first part of empiricism is transparency. You talk to anyone about transparency and ask their definition, they're going to say something different. Well, it means that we make our work transparent. Yes. Well, it means that we are telling everyone our thoughts in a transparent manner. Yes. Uh, transparency means different things to different people, right? So if you, um, if you see one person's interpretation of transparency, you might think something different. Uh, let me give you another example of that. If, uh, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of CEOs who say, yeah, we're going to make everything transparent. And then they'll get into, oh, we didn't know you meant that. 
right? So, oh, we didn't know you meant that we were going to make the financials of our project transparent, or we didn't know that we were going to bring in the stakeholders and get their opinion and make that transparent. How do you feel about having the financials of a project very transparent? I've seen these conversations and discussions popping up about, for instance, employees and colleagues sharing their the rate of their paycheck, the amount mm. of their paycheck. I personally, I think it's a really weird discussion because we work for the same organization. We want to be transparent. We want to trust the people that we work with. Why is it such a hard thing to make financials visible and transparent? Well, it's a very good question because it's a very sensitive topic. It depends on what you're talking about with financials, right? Um, you know, but so the second, second, third part of empiricism after transparency is inspection adaptation. So if you think about that from a just just from a sensitivity aspect, there is going to be some kind of reason or some kind of expected outcome that you would have of making things transparent. So you have to understand if you're going to make your paycheck transparent to others, what's your expected outcome with that? So you asked about what's my feeling of how of sharing financials on a project. I'm perfectly as if I were on a team, if I were a developer on a team, I would want to know what the total of this product or project is spending and maybe what revenue is coming back as a result exactly. of my work. Yeah, you, you know? want to know in what position that you are. Because like you mentioned, empiricism is making decisions based on the current information, the current data. If we don't know about the actual financial state, and for instance, indeed the ROI, we can still make really messed up decisions and get into, relating to this, to the topic of this, this episode, into a fucked up financial position while we're delivering really valuable quality work that doesn't really match their financial expectations. If we don't make it transparent, how can we use empiricism to still move forward into a financial healthy position? Right, exactly. But then you get to the other side of that and look at, you know, my paycheck versus your paycheck. I really don't, I'm not going to care. Someone else might care. Hey, I'm, I, I'm making, you know, half of what you are. Okay, fine. Uh, that might impact me in a negative way. It might not. But personally, on a project where I don't care about the financials other than what this project is is spending, I I really don't care. It doesn't matter. It's it the context that is in the 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 information that you're giving me is inappropriate. It doesn't matter. Do you think speaking of financials? The hierarchy in a scrum team is flat, right? No one is higher or better than anyone else. No, none of the accountabilities is more powerful when it comes. If, to- if you look at it from the scrum guy perspective, yes, I agree. You're right. Um, if you look at it from the self-managing team perspective, you might get a different answer. Yeah, so that's where I'm really interested in as well with these financial uh, situations too. Would you connect financials to just a team itself? Everyone gets paid equally. Because I see these developments in the market too, that product owners get paid more than developers. Scrum masters float somewhere in the middle. While 
they're all part of the team. They, in theory, they pay an equal amount of contribution to the value that's going to be delivered. It's in different areas, but they still provide their part in the overall product. I I love that. Um, have I ever been in a situation where that's happened? No. Uh, when when I'm talking about like a pro software product, uh, I think it would be an interesting experiment to run. Um, let me tell you about something in, in the professional scrum trainer community. Uh, kind of an unwritten rule that we have when we co-train with our classes is that the the revenue of the class is split 50-50. That's it. Like if there's two trainers, we split 50-50. Uh, and we agree who's doing the marketing, who's uh, doing this and that, how we're going to divide up the responsibilities of the class, whatever. And... It, this is just an unwritten thing, and we usually, you know, just as a kind of a formality, we just kind of decide that right up front. Um, so that's really the only time I've really worked with a model like that, but it's very interesting. I would love to hear someone's experience on working on a team where all of the pay for every single sprint was the same, or, or something where you could have your sprint one, everyone's paid the same. And then sprint two, because I, I believe that you should fund a product from sprint to sprint to sprint. It makes perfect sense. And I Agreed. know that works, right? So, you know, because it's you're always, every single sprint, you're always inspecting and adapting the product backlog. Why do you think that works? Why do I think that works? Yeah, funding sprint to sprint instead of just funding for a year and good luck. Uh, well, because you don't have to spend a lot of time to get a lot of money up front. Um, I think that we are too focused on that kind of a model. Where if, you I, say, if, I, oh. if I say ownership uh, in this, this context, what do you think about ownership? Ownership of the sense of ownership within uh, within the team related to the product. If you're going to go funding sprint to sprint instead of just mm -hmm. a year up front, what's your thought so on that? So the ownership of the actual you're talking about the ownership of the actual finance finance financing the project. Yeah, more skin in the game. Sprint to sprint. Yeah. Oh, skin in the game. Oh, well, in, in that case, um, it, you know, you, you're always trying to convince your stakeholders that what you're delivering is value. All right. So the product owner, you know, the product owner, you know, always has that, that monkey on their back to maximize value. So, you know, that, that means that you're maximizing the value that the team is delivering something. You're also maximizing the value that the stakeholders are receiving so that you can generate that feedback. Um, so I would say that you need to look at it from all sides of where that ownership comes from, right? I think that whether you're on the team delivering something and focusing on getting to your definition of done and producing the increment, or you are continuously ordering the product backlog so that you're maximizing value of the product for every sprint I feel like that that is a shared ownership because you're always going to have, even though the team is not directly accountable for 
maximizing the value of the sprint backlog, they still have influence over that. Similarly, a product owner has uh, influence on the team of how they get to the definition of done, but it comes down to the developers as to how they create the definition of done. That's why there's ownership. Now, there's ownership for the Scrum team to uh, have a definition of done. Do you think that if you would fund sprint to sprint, it would also help uh, developers and just the Scrum team in general think more about what really matters at this point, what really matters what we have to do in the next sprint, what should be the focus of our next sprint, because basically our jobs are on the line here. We're going to be funded. We're going to continue to exist based on the value that we deliver. Instead of having this wealthy organizational disease where you can just say, ah, there's going to be a next sprint anyway. We're just going to chug it. It's, it's good. We can, we're still going to survive anyway. I think it does. I think it does. Uh, it'd be an interesting, I don't know, but I mean, I think that would be an interesting experiment to conduct to say, yeah, we're going to, you're going to have, you know, we're going to spend 5,000 us dollars on this sprint. Yeah. Uh, you know, have fun with it and uh, use it wisely because a lot of that's going into what you're going to be paid for. Yeah, you know? that indeed. Yeah, gonna, yeah, I mean, if this is going to be a valuable sprint, then you're going to get another round of funding. Your job mm -hmm. is going to continue to exist, basically. Your position in the team is going to survive based on the outcomes of the sprint instead of, uh, we're there anyway. There's a also there's always another tomorrow mm -hmm. until there's not. Until there's not, right. And, and that's the thing is that uh, you're always working for that. You're always going to be working for the fact that, hey, I've got to... And, you know, that goes right into like things like the sprint goal. It's like, well, okay, we promise we're going to deliver this sprint goal. It doesn't matter what work we do to, to get there. I mean, you know, the amount of work is not what we're talking about. What we're trying to do is we're trying to get to this goal to get the feedback. And one thing I have done is, or I have experienced on a team is that, you know, we, we've done everything we said we were going to do for the sprint goal. Everything came out in the sprint review, the way, you know, the way that we said it was going to, and the stakeholders came back and said, you know what, this is nothing like what we wanted. Right. And so, okay, that's fine. You know, what can we do better next time? Right. So you ask yourself the question, did the stakeholders get value? And well, Yes, they did because they just produced something that you that they just you know they produced something that says, "Hey, this is what we want for this sprint." They did it, and it wasn't right. So now you know that that wasn't right. You maybe you wasted a bunch of money, maybe you didn't, right? But in the end, you got value. Yeah, and you got yourself empirically in a little, little bit of a fucked position. Because mm -hmm. it might affect your relationship as well. So now maybe you guys just don't understand what we need. It might be, you know, it might be, or it could be the stakeholders are not communicating their intentions. Yeah. Right. It or goes it, both ways. And that's the whole, the whole idea. You probably know this picture of this swing, right? Where the client says, I want this swing with three stairs or three, three steps. 
and then you have all these analogies of how different roles and different accountabilities interpreted and ultimately the client wanted something different than what the thing that he stated so he found out that because by using the product by having developers making their mistakes um, by having different alignments ultimately you get to a product that you want um, but it might not be the thing that was mentioned first because in practice it's different than it is in than it is compared to the picture in your head how do you move forward with this how do you think we should really align with stakeholders to get there so so i i get a better picture with that i'm i'm familiar with that uh kind of picture where you you he goes through the stages of a swing with a wooden seat and uh, in the end they wanted a seat a, a swing that has a tire on it yeah it was um, that one you know that one uh the better picture that i like is uh it, it uses a car so in the end the product is i want a car so the first picture or the fir- which represents the first sprint of what the team delivers is a skateboard. So that's not a car, right? Think of the think of the swing analogy with um with a non scrum approach to that. So a non scrum approach to delivering a car would be delivering the wheels as your first sprint. So that's the not, or, or I'm sorry, is your first iteration or your first go around, whatever. Um, it's the same thing as delivering a database or a database infrastructure. That is useless. That is not value. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, that could be another an, a, an analogy to the other thing I was just describing where, well, this isn't a car, but we did agree that we were going to get something that was going to be useful. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, it does have wheels. Um, I can use it to get from one place to another. So I think the next time what I want to do is I want to be able to sit down in it. Right? That's v- valuable feedback. That goes back to my other analogy of where I said, oh, it's nothing like we what we wanted. Okay. Then you start thinking, well, maybe it was something I didn't communicate correctly. Well, let's see if we can take what you delivered and change it. Let me see if that makes more sense of how I'm communicating what I'm doing. And it'll be less fucked up in the next iteration. (laughs) I was really focusing on the product itself, whereas maybe it's good to focus on the problem that you're trying to solve for for your clients. Do they really have clear what their problem is? Like the problem of a car, maybe you want to get from A to B in an X amount of time. A skateboard Mm -hmm. is definitely not going to cut it. While... A SpaceX rocket might be a little bit overcompensation. Somewhere <laughs> in between is a car. That's a good thing. Right. Right. So so it it's all about that feedback, right? I mean, I, even people people in general don't even know what agility is. I, I frankly, I mean, what, the word agility itself is nondescript. The word agile. What does agile mean? I mean, it's 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 really this thing, this this mindset that people talk about. Um, you know, and you, you, you start going into what exactly do you mean? Uh, and, and I've come up with a purpose for agility. There's actually two. So agility is about two things. It's about obtaining feedback rapidly and responding to change. 
That's it. So if your organization can do that, and depending on how well they do it, how aware they are to do it, and how resilient that they really are, and resilience is a real key here. Being resilient is so important because you've got to understand that you are going to fail. If you are in a cost-driven model for your company, you've got to have failure as an option um, because that's the only way that you're going to get better. If you continue to deliver things perfectly and you think as a CEO, hey, we're delivering things perfectly, we have nothing to do, you're not learning at all. Right. So if you're not collecting that feedback and obtaining that feedback rapidly, sending that back to the people who know how to deliver the product so that they can respond to those changes in another, in a fast manner, then you have mastered agility. Which is what this podcast is all about. I think the safe, the skilled agile frameworks, 12th principle by, uh, by heart is assume viability, um, preserve options. And I think uh, that is a really great way to deal with agility as well. I think in the overall market, we're getting a little bit skewed on the meaning of the word agility. Indeed, like what you mentioned, I think a lot of people think agility is a framework. It's something that you do. It's not really a mindset for those people. While right. I uh, wrote an article on Medium a couple of weeks ago, where to me, the embodiment of agility is a cheetah. He travels at high speed, but as soon as his target moves just by an inch, he adapts his way. He really responds really fast based on his optical feedback. I think that is what embraces agility for me. Mm -hmm. Where do you yeah, think that we got skewed in the overall process from where this thing, where the agile movement, if you will, started up until the point that we're now that we continuously have to realign on what we think agility is. I think that we got sold on the fact that agility is a way to deliver product faster, which once you get that little nugget in your head, which is a misconception, by the way, it doesn't do that. But once you get the nugget in your head that agility helps you do deliver faster, it's very difficult to change your mindset from that. Why? Um, and I think that, you know, I, I think that, you know, Scrum even way back, they had a tagline that said software in 30 days or less, which is true. Uh, I mean, they just, I don't think that it's a tagline anymore, even though the, the framework still promises delivering value in one calendar month or less. Uh, but I think that that's really the thing. That's really where we get messed up is because, oh, it's all about delivering faster. And, you know, it's, there, there's many ways to look, up, look at that. But eventually, you know, if you master the agility purposes of obtaining feedback rapidly and, and responding to change, then, yeah, you'll be able to deliver faster, quicker, cheaper, and all that kind of stuff. But up front... There's still a lot of work to do. You know, that's another thing with Scrum is that Scrum is not designed to solve your problems. It's not. Scrum is designed to bring your problems to a better surface, to more awareness, so that you can solve them. That's the purpose of Scrum, right? Actually, you brought up uh, some of the principles of SAFE. Um, the one 
principle of um, a, the original Agile Manifesto was the one that talks about simplicity. I think it's number 10. Uh, but simplicity is the art of maximizing the amount of work that is not done is essential, right? Because it, you're always, if you have a product, it is always going to have things where you're going to be able to obtain that feedback and be able to make changes to it to make it better. I think that's perfect. Yeah. It's really hard to get that in your mind, doing, not doing things. You always have this idea, we got to do something. And I think with the entire process of if getting to the point that we're, we're at now, we still try to have a high utilization rate because if people are busy, they are delivering value, right? Mm-hmm. Eh, I don't think that's per se the case. I mean, if I look at myself, it might be really ha- useful to have half an hour just of nothing to keep an open agenda so you can relax a little bit in order to focus later. Um, but I think it's really, like you said, it's once you get that into your head, that you really want to focus on either getting things faster or Scrum is going to save us money. Agility is going to save us money. It's really hard to get that, really get that out of your head. Mm-hmm. What can we yeah, do? I, what do we do? Yeah. What do we do then? To, to get that nugget out of your head that yeah. says, oh, you're going to be able to deliver faster. Uh, I think you, you actually started to allude to it. You have to become involved with the product. Um, And I don't mean that you have to get your hands dirty and start working on things. I think what you really have to do is you have to really know as a corporation or as an organization what your values are, what your principles are, uh, and forget about the framework. Uh, Because I've seen organizations... The, one, the ones that are more able to adapt to change, uh, having the ability to just continually m- remind people in the organization of what the strategy of the corporation is. That's it. Here's the strategy. I mean, we just want happy customers. That's it. And continually remind the people that are in the trenches doing the work, saying, you know, I'm sure the work you are doing is awesome. But I want you to ask this question. Are we still able to have happy customers with the work you're doing? That's all you really have to say. Just have that kind of influence. People in the corporations at the top just don't understand the influence that they have, whether it's positive or negative, uh, and whether they're bringing order or chaos to their organization. I mean, I'm working with an organization right now, um, and... I'm actually working with a partner of mine because I can't, uh, you know, I don't have the capacity to do what he does. But anyway, it's it's in total chaos. And the reason why it's in total chaos is because this organization was inherited by um, the CEO's father who passed away. And he doesn't, he has no awareness that he hates his father. I mean, has a genuine hate for his father, and it is being rippled through in his organization as chaos. And those, these are the messages that he is sending his employees. Not, we want the best insurance company possible. It's more of, you should be really scrutinizing your work. You should really, because heads are going to roll. 
That's <laughs> awful, know? man. It must be a really tough situation. It is. And, and there's people who have been there over 20 years, and I continually tell them, I don't know why you're still here. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it, so to get that out of your head, it's really just, it, it's really more about simplifying, you know, your thinking of the investment that you have as a company, right? I mean, do you really care about it? If you really care about it, then you're going to say, hey, you know what? I really care about this corporation because I really care about the people that del- deliver value. Um, and if you're sending some other message, then you're on your way to chaos rather than agility. Do you think CEOs in general, not just this, this specific one, but CEOs in general benefit from being part of the sprint reviews for 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 instance, just once or even? Do I think so? Yeah. Uh, my answer is based on the feedback that I received from CEOs saying, yes, I did get something out of it. Um, so yes, I think so. Um, am I going to know the answer to that question? No. Uh, a CEO is going to know if they benefit from a sprint review just by attending it or by listening to a scrum master who asks them, hey, or, or just kind of suggests, hey, come to the sprint review. Just, just walk by it even. You know, I've seen CEOs do that and say, oh, wow, there was a lot of people there. There were some of our customers there. Yeah. Hey, you got something, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Is a CEO a stakeholder? Maybe that's a better question because the Scrum Guide states that we should invite, uh, brackets, key stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Now, when I look at my my own practice uh, experience, the term stakeholders is still relatively vague because stakeholders in most cases are users and the ones paying for it mm-hmm. while managers are still a stakeholder and, and therefore the CIO, CEO or CIO, whatever C-level management might be a good stakeholder as well because it affects I, your business. So the, the way that I, the way that I answer that question in classes and in, as a coach is I say, just think of a stakeholder as someone who is not part of your scrum team. So that's basically anyone could be the competition too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that's funny. You mentioned that I'm actually working with a corporation right now, uh, another team who is thinking about inviting some of their stakeholders to their sprint reviews. And, th- and they also noted that some of their stakeholders are actually going to be competitors. That's interesting. Oh, that is very interesting. I'm like, hmm, yeah. Then it looks like you might have some. That's a very interesting thought. And so now you might want to tell you your sprint reviews differently. What do they expect you gain from having their competitors attending sprint reviews? I think it's a really interesting case. you, You said the exact same thing that I asked them. I said, well, what do you expect to find? Because I've coached them to say, invite some of your stakeholders. And I coach them, you know, in that way. And they, they, they are. And I ask them that same question. So they're still pondering that. It's a very interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you know. Because <laughs> you might want to, maybe you can confuse your competitors in the transparency of your artifacts, deliberately making them opaque kind of gaming their perspective of you there's an interesting thought and then you get to your different yeah 
No, I was just going to say the first, uh, that would mean the first level of empiricism would then be, how opaque are you? <laughs> As opposed to transparent. Yeah, exactly. You, you want to get an uh, 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 advantage over your competition, right, with your product. So in, in order just to survive, and this might be a really interesting tactic. So once you know, let us know too, and we can include this uh, in a future podcast. I, yeah, I I will. Now, yeah. how do you get from such a situation back to not thinking about it? Because I th- I feel they have a a healthy way of thinking about their competition. That these they are thinking about their competing products, which is uh, already something that I don't see a lot of teams really do. Uh, mindfully, let's put it like that. How do you get back to such a situation or from such a situation? Just focusing solely on your product and your local environment in terms of what and so getting back to your product and focusing on your product in terms of what well it could be if you're going to over focus on your competition and really focus on we need to outcompete them you're going to maybe you're going to divert from the problem problem that you're trying to solve with your product you're focusing in such a way on your competition that you're not focusing on the problem at hand anymore. Mm-hmm. And you're getting yourself into an empirically fucked situation. Mm. Yeah. So, um, well, just knowing that, you know, if you invite your competition to, and I'm just spitballing here, just kind of throwing throwing some stuff out there, just not knowing any knowledge. If you, if you're having any knowledge, if you put your competition in your sprint reviews then first of all you've I, you've probably identified them as your competition so you have that knowledge uh you know that said um you know if you send the messages we're being completely transparent about it and by the way here's our product backlog and here's the top of our product backlog and here's what's coming in our next sprint who's to say that with that knowledge your competition would change their product, you know, and their product backlog to say that. And guess what? Now the business business um, conditions have changed. And so maybe now the product owner says, oh, okay, well, I noticed that such and such of our competitors is, uh, you know, they said this or they were whispering to another competitor or something like that. Maybe we can change it around. What's more valuable to our stakeholders now? You know, they've changed the conditions of the business so they can change their product backlog going into the sprint planning for the next sprint. You know, um, it's all about empiricism. Yeah, I think it's a really um, interesting case. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's, uh, uh, it could be bittersweet, but it could also be very beneficial. And, uh, you know, here's the other thing is that, um, you know, I, I mean, you don't know how well your you don't know how well your people work on, or that particular company will work on a product. You know, you don't know what's going to happen in the next sprint. They might overcommit, or they might say, "Oh, well, let's let's pick a sprint goal that's a stretch goal, and maybe we can get more." Uh, you know, it's it's really all about that feedback that you get from your users. Um. You know, it's not about getting things out the door. I don't want to make 
bring confusion to that. But now going back to you, the term stakeholders and what were we discussing before, uh, where you mentioned that your stakeholders were kind of surprised by the outcome that your team delivered. It was not mm -hmm. what they expected. Where is a healthy balance for stakeholders to really be engaged? Do you just want to have them in the sprint review saying, having a look at the, the, the increment and going through, right, these are maybe new insights and we need to adapt our sprint backlog or the product backlog based on these insights? Or do you want to really treat them like a team member where it's not more the customer is king, but the customer is actually part of our team helping our product forward? Um, trying to understand your question. Are you saying that uh, where do you have that healthy balance with stakeholder involvement on a, in a sprint review or? Yeah, or just throughout the entire sprint. Do you want to have your customers and your users there just during the sprint review or should they be part of the entire process in between? Um, you know, I think as a product owner, I think uh, what you should do is have a expected outcome for stakeholder involvement. Try something, see how that works, and then measure that outcome with your expected outcome. So, you know, let's take your example. Let's say that, uh, um, you know, we want your stakeholders, our stakeholders, who happen to be users, let's just say that they're users. Let's let the users uh, be part of our process and sit in our sprints. I've actually seen that work before. Um, where actually the stakeholder, the user themselves just said, I just want to be a fly on the wall for your sprint. Product owner said, okay, no problem. Here's some times you can come in. What did uh, the developers think of that? Uh, it depends on who you asked. So some of the ones, uh, th this was a team of six or seven trying to remember the team space now it was an open it was an open forum so it was an open room uh seven developers product owner scrum master and uh some of the developers were okay with it some of them were kind of nervous um i will say that the user who was in was kind of taking a back seat and not really pairing up with anyone but they were doing things like looking at the product backlog and seeing things move and I think that was probably the most valuable thing for a for the user was to see something move across the board. Um, it didn't; it only moved from one column to the next, but they were able to see something moving. I don't know if that was something that they actually asked for. So, um, you know, just to have that satisfaction for the user was great. But with the developers, it depends on who you asked. I mean, you know, th this user was pretty pretty good with uh, observing the conditions of the room and knowing who was working and focused and who was kind of talking and discussing things. And so, but they, they pretty much just took an observational point of view. Uh, and, you know, a couple of the developers did engage that user just to kind of talk and talk about things. So um, it was mixed, it was mixed, but it was a good mixed teams too. So uh, it was a good mix of personalities on the team. So that really depends on a lot of aspects, the product that you're working on, the team that you have at hand, the stakeholder, uh, uh, willingness to engage with you. Uh, the reason mm -hmm. why I ask, because I see these, these teams working on products like machine to machine uh, work where 
uh, where their work just talks to a different component um, and there are no users there. Where on the other side of the spectrum, you have, I don't know if you've ever seen this clip on YouTube of the Nordstrom Innovation Lab, where the Scrum team is working in a Nordstrom shop. And I'll include the link in the show notes where everyone can see it. Uh, I think it's really interesting, but the team is working in a Nordstrom innovation or in a, in a shop in store. Um, and they're including users in their process. They're developing a really simple tablet app where people can compare how different sunglasses or different glasses look on their faces and they can pick their favorite ones. So they can put different pictures side to side and immediately compare, all right, this is how it looks on me. This I like best. But they're doing that by collecting the feedback of the users right then and there in the shop, immediately incorporating that, immediately going through that feedback so they can bring that back to the users right in that spot. And I think that's really the other side of the spectrum, which I think is super interesting as well, because that gives a whole different meaning to pair programming. Yeah. Yeah, I love that analogy or the experience you just gave. Uh Looking back in my example as well, I think that the the user really got the most value out of seeing something being tested, um, which kind of falls in line with what you were talking about. Um, now, with the, the pair programming, I find that very interesting. Um, go into that a little bit. What uh, what did they find was interesting in the Nordstrom Lab example? Uh, who do you mean, the team well, or the users? Well, you mentioned pair programming. I was just wondering what what uh, uh, how that related to what you were saying. Uh, that part I just picked out of that myself because that's what I was really relating that to in my head. Like this mm. is to me this is a different perspective of pair programming or pair development, if you want to call it like that. Um, I don't remind that there is a part in that clip where they zoom into the experience of the team itself. Just the whole process is part of the clip. Um, but I would like to see more of this in practice where teams would really collaborate with their users to drive their product. And of course that would require a little bit of the, the time and it would consume a bit of the agenda of the users ultimately for the better, because I think in general, a lot of stakeholders underestimate their impact on the overall development process. What's your mm-hmm. experience? Uh, I I don't have any experience with users directly working with developers like pair, in a prayer programming style. But that said, I think that that is the ultimate form of obtaining feedback rapidly. Uh, if you can reduce the feedback loop so that you have a user working directly with a developer, um, and be able to respond to change that way, I think you've accomplished agility uh, because uh, that information is extremely valuable to the developer and to the user. That was right? amazing to see. It was really cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. I, I would love to see that put into practice more. Oh, definitely. And I, I'd love to hear some experiences on that. Um, the only real experience that I have directly with users is when it comes to um, a test-driven development kind of scenario, which kind of goes in with your pair programming. And basically with a test-driven development, you write the test first 
which basically is telling, I mean, that concept in itself is very difficult to get your head around testing first. Well, what does that mean? Well, yeah, it means you are actually forming the test. What are, what's your intention with this? What is your expected outcome? What are you going to do? Why is this valuable? Why does this matter? Uh, It answers so many questions before you start getting your head around, hey, how am I going to develop this? Right? How am I going to solve this problem? Well, do you know the problem? And I think that if you had a user there, this is my experience, when a user is involved with forming the test with you, I mean, that is just incredibly valuable because now you're in a test-driven scenario and now you know what the user wants and that's solving the user's problem. Likely. Likely, indeed. And that kind of relates, makes me think about when we as a Scrum team write user stories. We are not the user. Then how can we write the story? What's your thought on that? Hmm. Uh, that that's that's a great that's a great question. The thing about a user story, my understanding is that the most important part of it is so that right. It's as a who I want to do something so that that's the purpose. That's why we're doing this. Um, if a developer does not understand the purpose, then there is no way that. They can even form the acceptance criteria from that, or they can't even write the test. They're not going to know what to test. They're going to be developing something and it's going to turn into waste. Um, so yeah, you have to know the purpose. And that's why, uh, that's why when I coach a team, I say, well, that's probably the most important part of why you're doing the user story. Why, why is this important? Yeah. And you're not going to get that out of yourself. I mean, we can assume and make things, think about things, why this would be useful to a user. But if the user is not going to actually be involved in this discussion, then we're kind of telling our users what they think is valuable, which I think, again, is a really weird situation. Hey, John, coming back to the original topic, (laughs) empirically unfucking things. What do you think is the solution for getting out of a fucked situation in an empirical way? Um, there are several things, and I think most of them are are really soft skills. Um, I think awareness. It starts with awareness. Yeah, things are fucked up. Or coming to the realization, yeah, there's some fucked up things here. Um, I know some people who say, oh, it's really fucked up here, but I don't care, you know? Um, so making that's, them, that's, tra- making it transparent would be the first step. Yes, making it transparent, but the awareness is very key because you could, something could be right in front of you. I mean, this happens to me even. Something can be right in front of you and you're looking for it and it's like, oh, where is that? Oh, it's right in front of me. Um. You know, so transparency would be a start, but I think the awareness comes into it. Um, I think also um, with that awareness comes active listening. Uh, This is a skill that I have really tried to develop over the years. Um, And when I say active listening, I don't don't mean, you know, okay, I I heard what you said, and now I'm going to go into what, 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 the solution is it's more about okay repeating the question right and kind of getting my understanding of what you're saying actively listening to someone saying oh so you're saying things are fucked up oh 
you're saying you're overworked. Oh, well, there's too much work. Oh, okay. So we're spending too much money. So I can't cut people now. Okay. Hmm. Active listening, right? Kind of taking that in. Um, the coactive and- coaching feedback model framework uh, has an interesting part in this, in the three levels of listening. I can recommend looking into that to anyone. Right. Um, it, it's it, And it's not, you know, no, it's not something that you can, well, a lot of people, it's not something that you inherently have. I had to develop the skill. Um, I mean, I had to start by saying, you know what, you're not listening to me. Uh, just by taking that in, even. I also think that in, in order to unfuck things, uh, you really have to have a lot of vulnerability. Um, and even that term in itself uh, is misunderstood. Um, you know, vulnerability just really tells people that you're human. You know, if you don't listen or if you're not aware, um, you know, and you don't ad- admit that you have any kind of shortcomings or you can't fail, um, you know, you're not vulnerable. Uh, it, it really takes it, it really takes a a skill to be how should I say to be brave, really to practice vulnerability. I mean, you, you really have to. It shows strength, right? You don't show strength by saying I'm the most powerful person here and what I say goes. That is definitely not brave. That is more about putting up a front and being. Um, you know, totally impervious to things and telling people you're superhuman, which you're not. Being vulnerable means that you can accept failure as a person, as an organization, as whatever, and you can learn from it. I think That's, vulnerability is foundation is the foundation of leadership. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know all that awareness. I, you know, awareness and active listening falls right into vulnerability. Um, you really, you, you really, it, it's again, it's, a, it's not an acquired skill. It's something you really have to learn. I mean, I, myself, I, I know it, like when I was a software developer, I developed such a, such a large head, um, about the, the stuff that I deliver that I said that everything that I deliver is the best and that's all there is to it. Um, you, you know, and so it's easy to fall into something where you don't, you know, you feel like you're, you're on top of the world, but it really didn't come to, I didn't really come to realize how, how my power was really in the fact that I could try something and let it fail and then learn from the failure. Uh, that was really where I was able to say, okay, well now I understand empiricism and now I understand how empiricism can get fucked up so much because it's misinterpreted. And that's really what we're talking about. Ah, that's powerful, John. I think that's a really good end to this podcast episode. Last question. Where can people engage with you? Uh, so you can go to my website, uh, which is readysetagile.com. Um, and I actually have got a couple of professional scrum classes coming up too. So uh, one of them is uh, in October 5th through the 7th. Um, I'm teaching the professional Scrum with Kanban from um, from Scrum.org, and I'm co-teaching with the co 
co-creator of the class, Dan Vacanti. So awesome. Uh, that's pretty exciting. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and uh, we're going to be talking about some simple, just it's all about Kanban and all about flow. So um, awesome. check that out. Um, I also got another class coming up in uh, November that I haven't scheduled yet. It's going to be a, a applying professional scrum for scrum developers. Uh, and that's coming up in November soon, but I haven't uh, scheduled that one yet. Right. So readysetagile.com, or you can just email directly. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast. Uh, John, J-O-H-N, at readysetagile.com. I'm going to include all of them in the show notes. Also, where people can... Uh where can people can uh, uh, apply for your course? Sorry, couldn't find the word. <laughs> uh, so it's going to be uh, readysetagile.com slash training. Awesome. Uh, it's going to have uh, Easy. All, my, yep, all the classes and uh, everything you need. Cool. John, thank you very much for this really interesting discussion. Yeah. And yeah, let, us know how the com- let us know how the competition invite, uh, invitation to the uh, sprint review went. I will definitely when I get some feedback. Awesome. Enjoy your day. Yep, you too. Thanks. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode of Mastering Agility. This podcast is part of a series, so make sure to follow us on all the platforms that we provide. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date on the latest information. Check out the show notes and how you can engage with our guests and myself to provide feedback, ask questions, um, more general inquiries, whatever. I would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another amazing episode lined up. So make sure to tune in again. Until then. Thank you.